0: You know, one of my favorite quotes—it keeps coming back up to me—is from from Warren Buffett, where he says, "I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor, and I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman." I think it applies to everything that we do in our field of work, right? If I become a better data analyst, I become better at at discovering needs, at coming up with strategy, and and vice versa. So it all connects together. And while while part of me believes that there's some advantage to becoming more specialized in terms of producing better and better output for our clients, I think you also have to have the cross-pollinization.
1: Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson and joining me as always my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our very special guest, Eric Eske. Eric is the Managing Director of Dark Horse Works. If you're in innovation, product management, or jobs to be done, you are in for a treat and listen carefully. Eric is one of the most experienced jobs to be done practitioner on the planet and likely other planets too. Like myself, he was personally trained by jobs to be done pioneer and creator creator of Outcome Driven Innovation, Tony Olwick. He has nearly 20 years of experience in executing jobs to be done projects. He's completed projects across many industries, healthcare, medtech, government, finance, textiles, software, agriculture, food, and I expect there's a lot more if we dive into it, multinationals and startups as well. But when you meet Eric, you'll find a humble dude who listens more than he talks and asks amazing questions. Last year I jumped at an opportunity to work with Eric on some projects, and I was quite transparent about how much I valued his expertise, but I can tell you that I value his friendship even more. And listeners were all in for a treat today to learn from one of the top practitioners of jobs to be done. Eric Eske, welcome to the Product Quest podcast.
0: Thank you, Scott. Jonathan Yon, thank you so much. I'm blushing,
1: which I normally don't do. Thank you. <laughs> We specialize in introductions here. That's one of the things, it's one of our things we do best. All right, Eric, I'd like to actually begin with when we actually met, something that you may or may not remember. I had just given a presentation at a strategy conference, and I had used an example from the Heath Brothers book, Made to Stick. Uh, You walked right up to me, and we started a conversation about innovation, and we're sort of continuing that conversation to this day, I'd say. But let's go back to just before that time. How did you discover jobs to be done initially?
0: Oh, yeah. This goes back to when I was a, a product manager, a technical product manager at Hewlett Packard based out of Boise, Idaho, responsible for creating uh, laser printers. And we were always being in this cycle of trying to discover what customers want so that we could beat our competitors. And the typical way of approaching this was marketing would look at what our competitors, Brother and Epson and Lexmark were doing, look at the speeds and feeds and say, okay, this is what we need to do at this stage of the product roadmap. And I was always dissatisfied with that. But then um, one of the marketing leaders gave me Clay Christensen's first book, The Innovator's Dilemma. And he said, Eric, you've got to read this. And I popped open the first chapter and Clay drew me in with this powerful idea that we could... Treat innovation in much the same way that lawyers and in the medical community has treated their disciplines. Like we can actually apply scientific principles to discover cause and effect, what, what works and what doesn't and in what situations. And just that one powerful idea drew me into Clay's full literature. And so eventually it was the innovator's solution. And I may have the details of this, I may be misremembering, but it was something like Chapter three, footnote eight, they refer to Mr. Ulwick and his work with applying Six Sigma-like thinking to the innovation process. So that's where I uh, twisted Tony's arm to come do a project for us at HP. Now, I, I was in a situation where while I was a manager, I didn't have any budget for market research. I ran a team of engineers, but somehow I was able to corral the funds. We hired Stratagen. We brought them in, we started doing the work. And I remember so clearly, we we did focus groups in Denver. I bet you Tony remembers this too. We're in the lobby of the Denver Hyatt after doing focus groups of customer interviews. I'm just a kid at the candy store. And I'm trying to I'm trying to say, Tony, hey, I have I have these other ideas. Like I'll, I'll share one with you. I said, have you ever heard of a teeth? Brush? Well, you know what a toothbrush is. Yeah. And the American Dental Association says it should take you two minutes to brush your teeth. Well, a teeth brush is shaped like a football player's mouth guard. Hmm. It has Sonicare vibrating bristles. And so you can put it in your mouth, press a button, four seconds later, you've brushed all your teeth simultaneously. I said, Tony, wouldn't this minimize the time it takes to remove food particles and bacteria from your teeth? And he says, well, he said something to the effect, well, yes, but how do you know that's the unmet need? And j- he, he so gently um, twisted my arm to convince me that this was, in fact, a much better way to innovate at the time. And I never looked back. I just found my way to go work for Tony and just dive into this world of discovery and innovation.
2: So, so what is the problem with the teak brush?
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. Well... My, my bet is you have personal experience with this. Um, I, I actually developed a prototype of it with my team. We had this, there was this new business creation initiative at HP. And so I organized my team to create three different ideas. One was a set of related jobs to personal printing where a business owner might want to try fold a brochure or staple it very quickly to be able to put out a mailing. So we said, okay, that'll be our core offering, but let's do something somewhat adjacent. And at the time, my, uh, my firstborn daughter was just a baby. She was having frequent ear infections. HP had digital imaging technology. So we mocked up a digital autoscope to start enabling tel- telemedicine. So a parent could take a picture, send it in, and get a script, even if it was over the weekend. And so it was the third idea, the toothbrush, that we said it's it's very distant and adjacent, but it potentially can get the job done better. And uh, we presented it to, Carly Fiorina was the CEO, so we were able to present it directly to her, these three different ideas. I learned so many valuable lessons from that experience. For example, the power of prototypes to persuade. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know whether the prototype actually solves the need remarkably better or solves a highly unmet and important need, it's it's incredibly persuasive tool set. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we go back to the teeth brush. And after the executive presentation, everyone at HP could just sort of like a conference floor, circulate these ideas. And I noticed this pattern. There was one set of employees who had young children and they said, you know what, Eric, this would make it remarkably easy for me to encourage good hygiene habits with my children because it's, it's different, it's neat, it takes a short period of time, but helps them to cultivate that good hygiene habit. But then there was a completely different group who came in and said, you know what, Eric, my parents are aging. They're trying to maintain their quality of life. They're struggling with manual dexterity issues. And this might help them to be independent for longer. And because this was about the same time when I was engaging Stratagen for a project for the first time, I started realizing how powerful discovery is because as the originator of the idea, I had a presumption about what needs it was solving, but it was completely from my myopic spotlight point of view. But as soon as I ex- exposed that idea to others, I heard other needs come up and then it really stuck with me. Well, if we just flip the process on its head and discovered the needs first and all the needs, then we would come up with an even better product at the start. So, you know, Jonathan, it's funny because I never did do the study into Dental hygiene or teeth cleaning, so I don't know what all the needs are. But that one experience proved to me there were needs that I didn't consider, but we could have discovered them beforehand.
3: Yeah, can I make? I think there is. It, this is super interesting, but I, but I think there is a there is a distinction in there that it that comes so naturally down that you're speaking, but this distinction between a solution, a prototype, or a thing, and and the need, and I think that is like. I'm struggling more and more. I feel like to explain that difference or, or get the idea of that across. Like, when do you think that happened? I think Jobs Beyond is great at trying to, trying to make this explicit, but, but yeah. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I, I feel like there is a lot of, it's very difficult to grasp your head around. There is a difference between needs and you, you can discover them independently of a thing.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, I wish I could remember the philosopher's name. I can find it and, and send it to you afterwards. <laughs> He's a stoic philosopher. He's very well regarded. And in one of his books, he talks about this phenomenon that he calls a chain of desire. Mm-hmm. In other words, we want this because it gives us this because ultimately we want this. And so he he, he tells a very simple story, but it starts to illustrate a distinction between different uh, links in the chain. He says, you know, I want to find my car keys because I want to get into a car to drive into a a restaurant to order and eat a meal to satisfy my hunger. Hmm. And so what he does is he says, well, in in that long chain of desire, what we have are two different types of desires. They're instrumental desires, meaning I want them because it gives me something else that I ultimately want. And then he says, at the end, there's this terminal desire which is i want something just because i want it. So when you ask the question well well why do you want to satisfy your hunger? Yeah. You, you kind of get stuck and you start getting into the circular loop. But anywhere else in the chain you can always say well it's because of and in service of and he says these chains end up being incredibly complex, right? It's not just a linear set of links, but it could be multiple links like chainmail coming into the central nodes and a node kind of expanding to others, but they all eventually ladder to these terminal desires. And um, what I've what I've started doing as a as a mm-hmm. habit is to say given a new job domain in which we want to innovate, let's try to articulate what that chain looks like. Yeah. You know, from the consumption elements of this is the particular product or service I'm using today. And that's just a means to satisfy some goals and it's in service to some ultimate ends. And what I find is that if you can just visualize that and see it, all of a sudden you can start to see where in the chain, it's going to be most fruitful to focus or effort.
3: That's perfect. You don't know how much I appreciate that. You said that's a philosopher that gave you that idea. (laughs) That's where I'm coming up and I have, I have a hunch, but I don't, I'm not 100% sure. So I don't know like, that I love this, but I but I think that's perfectly right. It's this distinction between kind of things are means you want them because of you want something else. And a thing is usually not like, like a, a goal in itself, but a yeah. job kind of is or you well, it def- depends probably how you define it, but they tend to be things you want for the sake of it themselves, or they are in the chain of at the end there is something like that.
0: Yes, yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Sorry. I okay, let's not get too much into this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's exactly that's exactly the kind of thinking that I think when you're immersed in the jobs you've done world, you get there. I don't I don't know if it's a personality type or an apt, I don't know what it is, but this whole, as you describe, this chain of needs or chain of jobs and solutions. And one of the big ahas for me, well, initially, it was like, well, you got to keep you got to have jobs being solution agnostic. But then I was like, wait a minute. It sort of depends on your perspective. You know it's a totally legit job find your keys but, but then that's also a solution to, to something else so that was it was uh, at some point this idea of job agnostic to me it's sort of like it depends on your uh perspective as opposed to as opposed to uh, some absolute i think there are maybe a couple absolutes but for the most most things they're just it's a solution uh to something else Similar to you, Eric, reading the, the Innovator's Dilemma, it sort of, it didn't lay out the jobs thinking for me, but it sort of set that, something in the foundation, it's some, something in that I would have difficulty describing, but, but similar to you, uh, Innovator's solutions sort of, and finding Tony's work, and so, and then even, uh, you know, figuring out how to work with, with Stratagen, get all that a very similar path back to when you got started though doing your first do you remember your first project and uh like interviewing customers what did what did you find challenging about about getting up to speed as a practitioner
0: i was i was so unskilled in the beginning because <laughs> i i came from an engine mechanical engineering background yeah but had also gotten an mba mm-hmm. um and my very first project was with Washington Mutual Bank. Now they've since gone belly up. Um, and I remember this was this was at the verge of this idea of digital banking. And so they did have online interactions for the demand yeah. accounts, like checking and savings. Uh, but they were thinking of like, well, how do we ensure privacy and security? Like, do we have fingerprint readers on people's desktop computers at home uh, to ensure security? So I remember, um being paired with Christine Cordes. She was formerly with Microsoft. She was uh, with Strategy for a small while. She was extremely well experienced in research. And I, I remember being thrown in and doing my first interview and basically asking whatever question came to my mind, thinking that the job of a facilitator was just to ask the questions, right? Um, but Christine approached it completely differently. She's recognized the job of the facilitator is to produce really great answers. And so she was the first person who helped me to see that when you ask a question, sometimes a a customer, a respondent, a participant, they answer a different question, one that you didn't even ask because it's what they heard. But what I would do is I would just start following them. But what Christine would do, she would say something to the effect of, well, that's great, And I'm also really curious about this, and she would reframe the question to help the respondent hear it in a different way. And she was just, she was patient, she was systematic, she was generous and kind, but she was completely committed to what she was trying to produce, which was, I need a particular answer to this question, which is, in this part of the timeline, what are your unmet needs? And, I learned so much from her that I, I kind of credit the jumpstart in my way of thinking of, oh, I need to master the skills of market research in order to further master the skills of innovation. It really it started with her example. Yeah.
3: Oh wow! I this I love this switch of words what you're saying. I think I I think I've gotten it wrong up until now. I've, so a lot of times the idea behind. Facilitator is you need to tr- you need to know what questions to ask, but it's something completely different to think about it in terms of produce, kind of getting the respondent to produce the right kind of answer. I think that's a yeah. different kind because questions, it's just I'm kind of blabbering here, but questions are just one kind of solution to produce that those answers. You can get to those answers in different ways. So I really yeah. like that switch. Uh, yeah, okay, it's, it's just a comment. <laughs> no, no,
0: that's good. It's good. You know, <laughs> o- over the years, like Tony um, Olwick was also remarkable about this. And, and um, um, my advice to people who are just entering this field is: sample from all the great people and how they approach interviewing mm. differently. Mm. Even though we're coming from the same foundations mm. of job study done. So, if you listen to an interview from like Bob Mawesta, for example. He's engaging, he's, in, he's, he's uh, infectiously curious about different spaces and he'll follow threads all the way to the end. Whereas if you listen to an interview from Tony, he's much more systematic and thoughtful and you'll actually hear him speak very little in the interview, like a, a fun little metric to track when we're doing discovery interviews, is the, the amount of time the facilitator is speaking versus the respondent. And in Tony's case, he's very careful and parsimonious with his words. But because the questions he's asking are so precise and his listening is so fine-tuned, he can capture a wealth of needs even as the respondent is telling a story. But Tony always does this. He always comes back and say, Well, I heard these needs. Mm and lets the respondent confirm or deny. And you know, 80% of the time, Tony just, he just nails it. But comparing Bob and Tony's styles, very different. I think Tony's style is very good at producing needs. Bob's style think, can produce needs, but it's also very good about producing understanding of context and beliefs. And I think there's something to be learned from the different styles. They're useful for different purposes. And so my advocation is Be careful about becoming too good or too focused on one style. Sample the different styles. See where they're better for worse and what situations match because there's something powerful and many different. But but here's one thing to say. Have a method. Have a discussion guide. Have an approach. Don't just take a, a random walk through a conversation. Any method will be far better than that.
1: I think that's great advice to get to experience different interviewers because the other thing is based on the interviewer's question if you're observing you you don't really know where they're going you don't really 100% know I mean, they might ask what appears to be a closed-ended question like what feature would you like that seems to be a bad question but the interviewers thinking several steps ahead when the, when the respondent says that they're immediately going to want to understand the reason why, for example. Uh, And so it's, I think that's, I think, and I think also um, as a qualitative interview, you probably fall into certain patterns, right? of like you've got certain tools in your box and then, and so experiencing somebody else, you'll, well, you add tools, but you just see other ways they, they, they other ways they sort of getting to the same information i totally agree with you also about the value having a discussion guide i I, i'm curious about your thoughts on this i find that a lot of times i spend a lot of time on a discussion guide and then i barely use it um but it's like the effort it's like the work and putting into it i've sort of but now when i'm in the dynamic so i'm putting into it so i sort of know the things i want to get once the conversation begins i'm more responding to the Responded. I don't know if you have the thoughts about. Yeah. that. Let me ask you. So, what for? What What do you do to prepare as far as the discussion, guys? Very detailed, sort of high, high level structure. What's What's it look oh, like wow. in Eric's world?
0: There's 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 two big ideas I'd love to give to you from this, and th- this is yeah. this is just my perspective on it. One is that there is a clear distinction between questions that are good and exceptional questions. Mm. So so can I mm. can I test this with you right now? Of course. Right, so, I'm a little scared. So, but go ahead. Yeah. All right. All right. So Jan, I'm gonna ask you. Jan, how are you? Good. You're good. Okay, good, good. Um, I'm all right. You're right. All right. Uh <laughs> so let me ask a different question. Um Jan, um how can I make your day easier today? Like what's something I could do in five minutes that would just make your day easier? In five minutes? Um give me an idea what to cook. Oh, for breakfast or lunch or uh dinner. For for dinner. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> See, all of a sudden, like new questions are coming to me. Like, who are we who are we preparing a meal for? Is it you and your family? Is it just you tonight? It's just me tonight. So. It's just you tonight.
2: Oh, it's okay. a big so, chance.
0: Like all right. <laughs> Let me let me let me try it. Let me try a different variation of the question. I'll ask you, Jonathan. Um Jonathan, when was the moment that you laughed today?
2: Oh today I I didn't I didn't laugh, unfortunately. Um or let me think about it. Did I laugh today? Hmm. Um I uh... Maybe the, so the last time I laughed today, I was, I was mainly working and alone. So I didn't have much opportunity to, to laugh, but the last time I laughed was, um, playing a game with some friends. What game were you playing? It was a game where you had to invent questions. Oh, sorry. You had, um, yeah, you had answers. You had you had answers, and you had to invent questions for the other teams. So, so, and they had to to find the right. Sorry, no. You had to invent answers, and then um, people were asked a question. The other teams, and then they had to uh, find the right answer. And 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 you, it, they were quite difficult. Or let's say. Uh, random questions on very specific things that you wouldn't really know the answer to. And it was, it was very funny because you could invent all sorts of uh, fun answers that, uh, that, that people would have to try and, and often got wrong. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of fun with that.
0: That sounds fun. All right, I'll, I'll do one more example because I believe in participation. I want to hear from you, Scott. Um, Scott, what do you do for a living? <laughs>
1: It's always hard to explain at Cocktail parties, isn't it? Uh, I'm a consultant that helps companies to grow. Okay.
0: Now let me ask it differently. Scott, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I wanted to be a quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, no way. (laughs) Yeah. Roger Staubach, number 12. I had a uniform and everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, Thank you. Thank you all. What I was hoping to illustrate was a distinction between the typical question and a more exceptional version of the question. So, when we ask, for example, yeah, when I asked, How are you? I bet you've been asked that so many times in your life yeah. that you have this automatic subconscious answer that just comes out. When I ask my teenage kids, How'd your day go? Do you know how they answer? Fine. 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 <laughs> Fine. <laughs> right. The conversation just, just ends um if you ask someone about what they do versus what they wanted to be when they grow up what we're doing is we're breaking the script we're we're getting out of their automatic response into a a response where they have to go a little bit deeper but notice what happened like for me i started to become curious about oh what am i going to make for help you make for dinner yeah or or jonathan is like i want to learn more about that game or scott like i wanted to hear more about what it was like to grow up loving the the cowboys and football right it's all of a sudden you get pulled into their world. In other words, the power of an exceptional question is that it just creates this connection between you and the respondent. Mm-hmm. And so to go back to your original question, Scott, like how do we prepare? Like there's, there's four exceptional questions in discovery that I just absolutely fell in love with. And so I like to think about this both at the job level, but then also when you zoom in at specific moments in time where we're trying to discover where to create value. The first question is the wish question. What are your most important wishes or concerns in this situation that we're talking about? And usually what we get in a response is a list of, well, it could be anything. It's top of mind usually, but they become great anchors to give us permission now ask the second question, which is, well, imagine that I could fulfill your wish. Or I could address your concern. What would that do for you? What outcome would that produce? And here they typically start giving us the true job that they're trying to get done. Now, because we especially for you, for Scott and I, we have this common sort of historical basis and in outcome-driven innovation. When I say outcome, I'm not talking about a desired outcome. I'm just, I'm just trying to say, well, these wishes and these concerns you have. If we fulfill fulfill them and address them, it's going to give you something. What is that? So we're, in other words, we're navigating that chain of desire to something they're really trying to achieve. But then the third question helps us to really dive deep into root causes. It's an obstacles question. So given that you want these outcomes, what stands in your way? But I want to hear it from two perspectives. What within you holds you back? but then also what outside of you holds you back? And here we start getting closer to root causes. And in the course of the interview, you can do the five whys and really explore that problem space. But then it's the last question that relates to this idea that, well, you've been trying different solutions, products, services, your own behaviors to try to overcome those obstacles and fulfill your outcomes. So what are they? Now, what makes one better or worse than another? And a really nice acronym that encompasses all this is W-O-O-P, wish, outcome, obstacle, and then the P can be for prompt or plan. I haven't quite figured out how to label the P, but it's the idea of what makes one better or worse than others on the solution side. And what I love about this, this simple framework is that it takes really only 15 minutes to coach or train someone on it and without exception if they apply that and you can listen into the interview you will hear a wealth of need statements root cause problems that we can solve their beliefs and misbeliefs or misconceptions around the job space and while it doesn't necessarily always have the precision of what outcome driven innovation would say like, tell me what's time consuming, tell me what problems you want to avoid. You still hear that in this framework and it's extremely easy to teach someone to apply in just a few minutes. So that's one way that I prepare is to think about like how, how would a potential respondent respond to the W-O-O-P questions in different situations as a relates of a particular job domain. There's there's two other things I want to share with you around this idea of preparing for an interview, but let me pause there to give you a chance to react and follow up.
2: Well, I just want to say that I, I think that's a, a very, very nice way of, of presenting it. I really like it, and I'll definitely remember the WHOOP uh, framework. <laughs> I, I think it's a really it's very simple and I think it makes a lot of sense um I maybe just wanted to clarify the so what is the exact the difference between a wish and an outcome for you I think I know but I, I just wanted to make sure I I understood that a bit better what, what oh, is the yeah. wish and the outcome what's that the difference
0: well like if we' don't make this concrete let's pick let's pick a uh, job domain what 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 job is currently on your mind that you might like to explore? Oh, Just for me. Yeah. For you personally.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I have a, uh, uh, what job? Um, I need to, to finish some, some piece of work and under a tight deadline. And that's, it's a job, job. It's a, it's a real <laughs> job.
0: <laughs> I feel your pain. Um, Jonathan in in the situation in which you're at your desk and you're able to give it your focus you're facing a deadline and you know that there's something you have to produce in that moment what are your most important wishes or concerns
2: well i mean my most important wishes are that i want to do a good job within the time frame and not uh, and not uh, um and uh, you know optimize too much and and maybe waste time but be you know do the, the the best possible job with the time that i i have got yeah
0: yeah imagine that you had like the that session imagine it was the perfect session like your mind is clear you're in a state of flow everything's coming out and you're producing that really good solution in an effective period of time but it's time optimized and Meet your clients' needs. Um, imagine that was real. What would that do for you?
2: Well, it would um, enable me to be successful in my um, in my more general job or career. Let's say something like this.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, you may have noticed the difference in the nature of the way that you responded between the two. One was very uh, in the moment, right? It taught. I heard some outcome-like statements, right? I want to be time optimal. Maybe a little bit of hint of a root causes. And when you laddered it up, we got almost to the end of the of the yeah. chain of desire because they were talking about I want to be perceived and I want to feel and be perceived as successful. I want to grow in my in my career. And so each of those would basically—I'm using my hands to visualize—and this is a podcast, and no one can see my hands, right? But we have we have answers kind of at a very low level in a sense, and the second question produces answers that are more of a high level. Is so that just gives us two anchor points in the chain to start to explore what's in between to facilitate discovering the
2: right level of the job? So the outcome would be the higher level one. Is that correct?
0: Oh, potentially, potentially, yeah. Yeah, like um, when I interviewed some homeowners around um, lawn maintenance, like the front lawn in front of their house, right? When we asked, well, what are your most important wishes or concerns? Like things will come up like my, well, right now it's we're transitioning from winter to summer grass, and there's a lot of weeds that have grown up in this transition, and so there's thorns everywhere. So I can't walk over my grass without cutting up my feet feet. So what you know, imagine if we could actually perfectly address that. There's no more thumbs on the lawn. What would that do for you? Well, I could actually go outside and have a picnic with my family, you know, on a on a on an Easter Sunday without having to worry about, you know, getting itches and scratches and so on. So it's it's just a nice way to be able to start distinguishing yeah. means versus ends and links in the chain.
3: Yeah. But I think what, I, what 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 is super helpful is and and and, and that is probably something really specific to, to the approach that, that you're using here is you're, you're defining different sets of inform- different kinds of information, like you're distinguishing different kinds of information and you, you have separate ways to get there. And I think that is extremely powerful compared to, well, find an insight or something like that, which very often is the case that you give people to. to. So I I really like this what is it whoop like different kinds of information and different questions to get there i think that is an enormously powerful way of approaching qualitative qualitative interviews oh yeah and 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 the the difference probably in in for example an observer who has that in the back of their minds and they kind of are writing alongside and the the guy doing or the person doing the interview that's huge i mean you don't I, i imagine that it's super powerful just to have that kind of sequence and
0: structure yeah
3: yeah is it, where does that come from is that i mean is that you or <laughs>
0: no no it's not my it's not my work um and forgive me my mind is just fuzzy on authors names and books books names i will find a way to get it to you so you can include it in the show notes but the whoop framework comes from is it How's no, not carol dweck anyway suffice it to say it's, it's
3: okay yeah it's
0: a it's a it's a framework that comes from the field of cognitive cognitive behavioral science and it's it's evidence-based and it was originally developed for the purpose of helping people to, to navigate this problem that we face in jobs we've done all the time which is um oftentimes jobs are made way too abstract to yes. actually take action on and so I think about jobs in terms of a hierarchy now there are true aspirations that people have i want to lose weight or i want to look i want to look good i want to be healthy for example
3: oh man that's a job i'm (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's a few obstacles in there
0: (laughs) like it's it's absolutely true that that's the aspiration that's a job people are trying to get done but it's really hard to activate a product at that level so it At the middle level is something that we might call the outcome level, which is right. You might measure it by weight loss or other health markers, but the very bottom is the behavior level, which are the things that we can actually visualize or see people doing. And it's the actions that lead them to be able to satisfy their outcomes and ultimately achieve their aspirations. So three levels, aspirations, outcomes, and behaviors. Now, being at the behavioral level can be—I mean, there's there's myriad behaviors. Like we could create an inventory of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of behaviors, but not really discover the innovation opportunity because all behaviors are a means to an end. Well, in in, in psychol in psychology and this cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy approach CBT, this loop framework was developed because it helps people to the wish, the wish question is at the aspiration level. The outcome question is in the middle. And then when you start talking about obstacles and the P, which is in their case, they use P as plan. You're now at the behavioral level. So if I want to be healthy and I can measure that by, well, I'd, I'd be losing weight, then the things that I can actually do to lose weight right now might be to go walk 10,000 steps. Yeah. And so what they, they would say, for example, is, um. If I were to wake up in the morning, then I would take 10,000 steps and that achieves my outcomes and my aspirations. So that's that's where it originated, but it turns out it's extremely effective as an interview tool in our in our work. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And again, so the outcome, just for those of us in ODI world, this is a this is a we're using the word differently here. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's what so we'll have yeah. to have to keep in mind. We're using that like like
0: um, Oxford would use it in their dictionary. An outcome is a description yeah. of the result or the output.
1: All right, folks, this concludes part one of our time with Eric Eske. I've been in this job to be done business for a long time, and Eric's just one of the best. Today, we kept it really practical, really good tips about what to do in preparing to interview customers. Now, if you're a company leader, you wanna grow through products, or you wanna grow through M&A, or you're a product manager, Maybe you're getting ready to start a really big initiative. In either case, you want to check out Eric's firm, Dark Horse. Go to darkhorse.works. That's darkhorse.works. Fill out the contact form. Say hello. Tell them that you heard about them on the Product Quest podcast. Now, next time, we're going to push the envelope a bit with some specific ideas of how to improve the jobs we've done method going forward. Some of the things that Eric's been working on in that uh, mad scientist lab of his. Until then, follow us on LinkedIn to get notified of upcoming episodes, and we'll see you next time.
2: What a remarkably
1: handsome group of young
2: men! I always start with a compliment. That's very good.